Welcome to season three of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened, and reviewed the episode. I really do appreciate you taking the time. I'm so excited to share this week's episode of the Art of Teaching podcast with you. Professor Stephen Dinham is so well known in the Australian educational landscape that he almost needs no introduction. For those that need a brief recap, his experience in education and school leadership research is simply mind-boggling. Most recently, in 2007, he was appointed to the position of Research Director of Teaching and Learning and Leadership at the Australian Council for Educational Research. He took up his present position at the University of Melbourne at the beginning of 2011. He is currently a member of the Victorian Minister for Education's Expert Panel for Schools. In this episode, we talked about his doctoral research and why it was centred around teacher satisfaction, dissatisfaction, resignation and persistence, the link between leadership and teaching on student achievement, his thoughts on the changing role of school principals, and his work titled, Students Are Not Hardwired to Learn in Different Ways, We Need to Stop Using Unproven Harmful Methods, and why we need a different approach to teaching. Stephen's work has had a huge impact on me personally, and it was a privilege to sit in some of his classes during my master's studies at the University of Melbourne. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Professor Stephen Dinham, thank you so much uh, for your time. Where are you phoning from? Um, I'm from a place called Leetung, which is in the East Gippsland part of Victoria. It's about 300 kilometres from Melbourne. Wow, that's uh, th- that's quite remote, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, it's near the, the beautiful Gippsland Lakes. That's so a very nice area. Beautiful. Um, quite possibly the most important uh, question for our interview, what is your coffee order? My coffee order? Yes. I normally have a latte. Okay, fantastic. There and uh, Great. Um, and uh, also, what is a book that you've uh, read? It doesn't have to be in terms of education that has made you stop and reconsider everything. That's really hard because um, there's been so many of them, really. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things. It's a continual process. I mean, you just keep learning. And um, I go right back to the early days when I was at university and so forth in education courses and just encountering all sorts of stuff and some sociology and some was psychology and uh, some was history and some was educational policy uh, education law was an interest for a long time yeah, wow. so there's no particular um, book that I could put my finger on but one thing I would say it's important not to put yourself in too small a box yeah. with whatever your specialization happens to be yeah do you uh, do you enjoy reading things that are uh, you may have answered this question, but they're outside of your area of expertise. To, to I help. do, yeah, voracious, really, um, online mainly. Um, I got to the point I had so many books I had to give them away. Yeah. I had no more room for them. So it's mainly online, yeah. um, but it's, it's very eclectic. You know, it's reading uh, the educational media, for example, and, and how people are interpreting and pushing things and so forth. Yeah. The politics comes in. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you've got the comparative ed stuff. And I've been fortunate to travel a lot. So as you, you were mentioning, coming to Melbourne from Sydney, um, I've been spending time in schools in Germany and Finland and Vietnam and, and various other places. And that all helps you get a sort of an understanding of both what's general and what's contextual. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, I'd imagine with the, the current um, COVID-19 pandemic, you are spending a lot more time at home doing these conversations via Zoom. How have you, uh, how have you found that? Um, it's a challenge. Um, a lot of the teaching that I've been doing in courses in places like South Australia and, and at the University of Melbourne and so on, we have been using Zoom. Um, it's got its limitations. I mean, I like to read the cues with an audience and how they're going and and how I'm going and um, you sort of miss that part of it. In terms of working, helping people use online for teaching, one of the key challenges, and I put this up to some people right at the start of this whole business was, it's actually a necessity to personalise learning more than we have been up to now. In a regular classroom, it's possible for some kids just to sort of sit there and we don't notice them and they don't notice us. 
what have you. But if you're really going to engage with people off-site, online, I think there's actually an opportunity there to have a, a closer relationship, uh, closer understanding and personalising learning a little bit more. But it's certainly been a challenge. And um, I've been going to Germany every year since 2008, and I haven't gone for last year, and I won't be going this year as well. And yeah. Um, yeah. that's a great opportunity because I'm mixing, and not just with people from education, but people from all sort of policy backgrounds and government and so forth. Um, uh, can I ask, uh, sorry, ask as well, um, Professor Denham, what are some of the things that you've noticed? I mean, you're obviously incredibly well-traveled and you've also um, been working in a number of educational contexts. Uh, what are some of the things that you um, have noticed about great education systems? And that's a huge question um, and apologies for it being so broad. Yeah, a number of layers to this. One is the actual culture that the education system takes place in. And everyone talks about Finland and I've, I've been to Finland and I've given lectures over there and so forth and been in classrooms. It's not a competitive country to the same extent we are. Education's really highly regarded. Um, teachers have high status and all those sorts of things. Um, education is celebrated. So in Finland, for example, when kids finish high school, they get a little sailor's cap and they're out in the street and they're having their celebrations and it's supported by the whole community. So when you talk about great systems, you've got to look at the, the societal context for that. Now, if you go further, what you see is, for example, um, a great investment in education. In places like Germany, Finland, to give you those two examples again, the vast majority of people attend well-resourced government schools. Education is free. Uh, education up to the master's level at, at university is free. So I think in those great systems, education is regarded well, and it's regarded as an investment um, in personal, social, economic prosperity, yeah. then it is a product to be purchased and something to be competed against. You know, this business of getting an attar, for example, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's big news in Australia. It's not so much in these countries. In those other countries too, um, you see vocational education and academic education being on the same sort of level. That's not the case in Australia. We've never got vocational education and training right in this country because it's always been a poor relation to the academic stream. Wow. And if you can keep on going, you can, you can tick boxes. Um, teachers, teaching is, is well regarded. Um, people hold themselves to account more than uh, some sort of external accountability. We rely more on external accountability in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, some of these other countries there uh, training is lengthy and people really hold each other to account. So yeah, yeah. what we tend to do mistakenly in Australia is we'll cherry, try and cherry pick something that one of these countries is doing that seems to be high performing. But unless you take the whole context, cherry picking won't help you. Yeah. For example, Finland, they may not start school till at the age of seven, but there's a whole lot of other things going on there mm. to make them successful. So if we simply say, well, let's just, you know, we have, we have too much school, Let's um, let the kids start later and um, have less hours face to face. That's going to solve our problems. It's not. So, unfortunately, we are ambulance chasers in Australia. We we lack confidence in our own ability. We change too frequently. Mm. We we don't give things a chance to work through. We're continually restructuring, rechanging. Whereas the countries that are successful are more stable. Mm. Doesn't mean they're not innovative, but they're more stable. We have got change fatigue big time in Australia, I think. Yeah, I, um, I couldn't agree more. And I know that's such a, it's such a huge and such a complex um, discussion. Do you think there is a, in considering this sort of over-regulation uh, over of, uh, of teachers, do you think there's an assumed incompetence of educators in Australia or, or, or what can we, because um, it seems like in, in, in other countries, I know this is a generalisation, but it seems like teachers are maybe um, uh, treated more as uh, professionals than maybe they are here. There, there's a number of things behind this. And one of them is that education is one of the most feminized professions. And feminized, highly feminized professions are not taken as seriously as wow. other professions. Wow. They don't have the same weight or gravitas. And um, what tends to happen, and this has happened for a long time with the status of teaching, is that um, it's seen as, as a good, job for a woman that was part of the thinking early on and um, basically yeah, you do something else if you've got the opportunity so for many people men and women it's it has been a third or fourth choice because it's a mass profession it hasn't had the same status as other professions so we've had this continual 
toing and froing in Australia about is it a profession or not? Yeah. And one of the arguments for bringing in professional teaching standards, and I was yes. heavily involved with this development, including leading the writing of the standards at ACER when I was there, at least the early, the early stages of that, yeah. was we thought that if we could actually clearly articulate what we do, what we believe, what we have to achieve, this would actually communicate better to the community more broadly, as well as being very useful for ourselves in terms of training and development and so on. Mm -hmm. Because it's a strange profession. Everybody's been to school, but that doesn't make you an expert on education. Yes, but absolutely. Being a teacher and being a student are two quite different things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's that's really, really fascinating. And, and there's so much in that. And um, I, I know that so much of my time is spent unpacking those professional teaching standards. So thank you for your contribution. Um, do you think that, are you still involved in that process or? Um, I, it's a bit incestuous. When I was at ACR, I was involved with writing the standards for the teachers yeah. uh, with the four levels yeah. and also the, what became the principal standard. And then I led the piloting of the principal standard across Australia. Yeah. And then later still at, at Melbourne, we did the evaluation of the implementation of the mm -hmm. standards. Uh, but prior to that, I was involved with standards with the Australian College of Educators and various other things as well. Yeah. So, you know, I, I haven't had that close relationship now. The things moved yeah. on, but I have done various things for AITSOL yeah. in recent years. But it's been very pleasing to see, I think, the general level of acceptance of those and, and people are seeing the utility in them. Yeah. And they'll be fine-tuned over time, but we've got to be very, very careful we don't chop and change. Um, there's a tendency to say, well, something else has now become very topical. We have to you know, get that into the standards somewhere. The standards should be robust yeah. and they should be capable of being added to. We've got generic standards in Australia as opposed to other countries which might have specific ones for, say, you know, primary science teaching, for example. Yeah. So the challenge with generic standards is to have sufficient support underneath those standards and resources so that people can actually um, see it's real and authentic mm. for them. Yeah. And we've been fortunate there. I think the work that AITSL's done um, is, has been fantastic. It's one of the best web websites in the world that I've seen yes. in Absolutely. terms of uh, support for teachers and leaders and, and using the standards. So it's a great resource. So we've been I think very, very effective. It took us a long time to get the standards, longer than it should have been. And there were several false steps along the way, again, which I was involved with in New South Wales, for example. But when we finally got them, we had the benefit, I think, of um, experience from elsewhere. Mm. And by and large, I think we've used them very well. Yeah. Um, I'm in the process of doing my uh, higher accreditation, um, high yeah. levels of accreditation using the standards. And I, yeah, I just wanted to express my gratitude that the website is incredible and having those those work samples and those, those yeah. explicit examples of what we're looking for. And that, I know that has been through a number of revisions, but in terms of a tool, the, the AITSA website is um, is really phenomenal. It's probably the, 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 the clearest thing that we have, I think, in terms of that consistency in those standards. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. And uh, it's part of this thing. Everybody thinks they know a good teacher when they see one, That's right. including school principals. But <laughs> you actually need to define and measure and, and delineate what good teaching is and what the elements of good teaching are. Yes. And that's been part of this process too. Yes. It isn't just a matter of looking at somebody and saying, oh, they're a good teacher. And if we're going to give them good feedback on how they're going at all stages of their career, that's where the standards can be very, very useful because yeah. it gives you a language and a framework to actually have those discussions. Absolutely. And I think it, for me personally, it makes me, when I'm working through the standards, I can actually see my own um, areas of uh, improvement or areas of lack. And, and it, for me, like it's really helped to um, solidify my, myself as a professional. And I think it's been incredibly valuable because um, it's obviously it, it's made me sort of collect evidence and annotate evidence and talk about the different standards and, and, and identify professional learning needs. So it's, a, it's an incredibly useful tool. Yeah, it's uh, meant to be aspirational too. And I think if you remember the Master of Instructional Leadership that you were involved yes. in, the second assignment was about using the principal standard absolutely for a self-reflection tool. Now, most people who did it weren't principals yet. Yes. Um, hopefully they will be one day possibly. But um, again, that was to sort of get you to reflect on where your strengths and weaknesses are, yeah. but also to get a better understanding of the role. Yeah. And I think uh, for me personally, that was incredibly um 
uh, aspirational because I was looking at this this principal standard and thinking, okay, like if this is a direction which I want to move, which it is, and mm. um, these are the kind of skills and capabilities that I need to develop. So it's it's a really really um, useful tool. Um, Stephen, just uh, to change tack slightly, what were you like at, at school, and what was a teacher that had a uh, an a positive influence in your life? Okay, when I went to school, it was at the time when schools were pretty authoritarian. Yeah. And uh, there was no catering for individual differences. And at the time, only, well, fewer than 20% of, of students finish year 12. Wow. So basically, it was a situation where most people left after year nine slash year 10, um, went off to trades and so forth, uh, other occupations. So it was, I would call it a white bread curriculum. And it was very much a conveyor belt and if you fell off you fell off and and yeah. uh, on you went so uh, in terms of uh, values um things like multiculturalism um it, that those things didn't really get a, a guernsey um there was no personalization of learning it was very much exam driven and um it was all about basically, you know, regular term exams and half yearly exams and yearly exams yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So very, very knowledge-based curriculum. On the other hand, a very detailed curriculum because mm. shortly after I went through, uh, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. So the teachers that had an impact on me of a positive sense, because some had a negative sense, of course. were those who actually took a personal interest. Yeah, wow. Because we know that the, the student-teacher relationship is has a large effect size in respect of student yes. learning these days. But at that stage there, and, and classes were bigger, um, but it was basically um, very passive learning. So the teachers that made the difference were those who actually made the effort to connect with you mm. and ask you how you were going and notice that your work had gone up, down, sideways, gave you a bit of advice. Um, so I could think of one or two in that category. Yeah, wow. That's, um, it's really, and that's obviously a, it's such a common response that um, it's how teachers made you feel. Um, I think it's so, so important. And yeah, sorry, what were you gonna say? Well, I can say my own research, um, yeah. one of the things I do is asking people in different parts of the world what they want from schooling and so on. Fascinating. And when you ask students, it, the answers boil down to two areas. They want care and they want fair. <laughs> and I've done this in a whole range of countries and, and settings and so on. Now the care includes personal safety and personal mm. relationship. It's, there's a social aspect too, but part of the care is actually their academic development. Yeah. This means not writing people off, uh, stereotyping them, pigeonholing them, having low expectations for them because they come from a low SES school, for example. Now the fair part, again, is closely related. The fair thing is about being treated fairly, having equal opportunity, um, no discrimination, no stereotyping. Mm. Um, kids have a very finely tuned radar when it comes to fairness. And Absolutely. Children yeah. of your own, that's not fair is something we've all heard. Um, so that business of care and fair, yeah. uh, that's that effective domain type stuff is, is really, really important. Yeah. And teachers do that in different ways. Some are are more personable than others but but kids know the people who are doing the job and are treating them fairly um, you know the people who come along prepared um, give the effort uh, provide feedback do all those things that we know are important yeah students know this and one of one of the things that i think we don't do well enough is tap into students and student voice yeah absolutely uh yeah, I think look, I, I think that's um that's so important. And I'm just curious, uh, did you always want to uh, move into educational research, or was it something that you had a very clear picture of? Or well, the first step was moving into education because I've absolutely, yeah. And um, I knew what I didn't want to do, which was basically um, I didn't want to go and work in a factory like my father had done and my yeah. grandfather had done. Um, so I finished, the first step was to finish high school and then I was looking around for what I was going to do and as I said I knew what I didn't want to do. Now I had an uncle who was a, a teacher mm. that I admired a lot and uh, he'd done other things first and got involved in it. He, he subsequently ended up being uh, an associate professor in Queensland wow. and had worked overseas and so I did a PhD and all those sorts of things. So the first step was to become a teacher but um, being the first, um, being the oldest child and being the first person in my family to go past year nine Wow, that was all unusual territory. So I didn't have 
the role models, with the exception and possible exception of my uncle, and I didn't have the advice and everything else. So I went into teaching fairly tentatively and um, completed that and then started to teach. And I, I taught for 14 years and became, I think, pretty adept at it, although there were big gaps in my knowledge, um, which I've talked about when we've done our courses. Um, yes. Not knowing much about learning, for example, was one. Yeah. But then I, uh, I got to the point where I was either going to stay in schools and be promoted through the system that way, and I'd already been inspected for those sorts of things and so forth and been mm. offered positions, or going to universities. And I had this idea, I'd just done a master's degree at that stage and applied for a job at um, one of the brand new universities, which had been a CAE and then got involved there. And then I knew without being told by anybody and there wasn't much role modeling. I needed to get a PhD, I needed to get involved in research. So I started doing that very early on and thoroughly enjoyed the research. I'd had recent classroom experience. So getting back into schools, uh, researching with teachers and so forth, uh, it was very, very enjoyable. And it just went on from there and uh, been doing it ever since. Various projects, some of them self-developed projects and others where we've had contracts to do various things, evaluations and policy work and yeah. standards work and all those sorts of things. So it just became something that was very enjoyable. Yeah. And um, as I said, I didn't pigeonhole myself like some people do with their research. Some people do salami research where they, they got the same area and they keep having small slices of it all the time. So I was fairly eclectic in what I'd done, which was very useful in terms of seeing how everything fitted together. But I still thoroughly enjoy um, working with educators. Mm. So I've just finished work with some South Australian people and, and New South and Victoria as well. And I find that people who want to, you know, in other words, volunteers, people who want to learn more about education and so forth, it's a joy to work with them yeah. and to get the feedback and for people to come back and say, you know, um, this was really helpful, this really worked, uh, this helped me understand X, Y, Z, um, which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why the assignments we set are normally very applied. So we, we, you've got to get it back to your setting. It's not theoretical stuff that doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah. So you've got to make those connections. So I think research that makes a difference is important. I um, developed quite some time ago my three R's of educational research. Um, it has to be relevant because not all education research is. It has to be rigorous. In other words, it's got to be done properly. And it's got to be readable because at the end of the day, if it's all clothed in jargon and so forth uh, and, and terminology, it's not going to make a much of a difference. So I sort of talk about the, the staff room table test. And if a, a summary of the work sort of ended up in the, the table in the school staff room, people could pick it up and they could see that it was, it was authentic, it was useful, it was valuable, it was interesting, yeah. helpful, all those sorts of things. So that's the research I'm interested in. Now, other people are interested in other research, which is very fine grained and, and that's all, all fine. It all adds to the overall picture, but I'm very much interested in the research that makes a difference in schools and for kids. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I, um, I know we've, I've all been at conferences and read papers and my question is always about how is this going to impact me tomorrow when I stand in front of my class and um, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed, um, uh, I'm still making my way through all of your work, there's, uh, there's so much to read, um, but that's definitely one of the hallmarks I think of the, the work that I've read of yours is that it is, it, it's applicable and it's useful and I know that when I am teaching my students when I'm standing in front of them the next day, I know that there's something that I can take mm. from your work and implement it. So it is, it's very accessible. So thank you so much for that. And I, I just wanted to spend a few moments, um, if you don't mind talking about some of your recent work. I mean, there is so much, mm. um, but uh, I just wanted if you could help uh, unpack a, a statement that was made in the introduction to learning, leading and teaching. So it says um, that you write that your work on educational, sorry, you write that your work on educational leadership, teachers and teaching was lacking a crucial element, that of student learning. Mm. Can you please just spend a few moments talking about why the link between leadership and teaching on student achievement is so important? And feel free to fact check me if that is not what you said. No, 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 I hate to misquote you. I mentioned to you, it, it follows on from what I was saying. I was a teacher. I did a master's degree in education administration. Yeah and then moved into universities. And, and at that point, what I, I realized, I knew about the administration side of leadership and the organization, mm -hmm. the managerial side. But I realized in my own training, I, we weren't taught very much about learning, student mm -hmm. learning. We were taught about teaching techniques and writing units of work and, 
assessments and those sorts of things, but the learning side was, was really lacking. So I set out to know more about that. And my own research was helping to do that, but I, I broadened the research to include that student learning angle. So what I was trying to do was bring together the literature on learning, much of that comes from psychology and so forth and other things, um, the literature on teaching and the literature on leadership because they were largely disconnected. So um, I wrote a book called um, How to Get Your School Moving and Improving. Yes. It was the first attempt to do that. And then the leading learning and teaching subject and the Master of Instructional Leadership uh, came. I was the sort of driver for the MIL and um, I saw the need for school leaders to actually not just be managers and administrators and so forth, which they'd been told they had to be, you know, managing a school and marketing a school and all that sort of thing, the self-managing school. But I, I really saw the need for leaders to understand learning and, and to help teachers to teach more effectively. So that was the reason behind the whole instructional leadership uh, program that we developed. And um, I just saw the impact more generally from other people's research that instructional leadership had had on student outcomes. You know, worked with Vivian Robinson and so on, had done meta-analyses and, and that sort of thing. And I just, I was convinced that basically this was the way to go because I described a lot of the education administration, education management courses that people were doing as being like a donut. And the yeah. bit that was missing in the middle was, was learning. Yeah. So what we've done in this course and what I've done with the other work that I've been doing is, is to focus very much on on the learning side, including in certain subject areas like maths and science. In particular, we did a, a national study there for the federal government on maths and science in particular, um, but very much from a student learning perspective mm. and, and student mindsets and so forth. So I just see it's absolutely essential. And people will disagree with this. People will say, look, um, anyone who's a good manager can run a school. Well, if that's the case, you want other people to be able to lead the learning and teaching. But I do, I do think that all school leaders have to be you know, cognizant. They won't know every area of the curriculum, but they need to know the fundamentals of, of, of learning and teaching and um, working with students and working with teachers and so on, if they're going to be effective. Yeah, There is a view, as I said, some, some people have argued, you don't even need a teaching qualification to be a principal. And in some countries, that's true. You have engineers and real estate agents and all sorts of people running schools, but they are managing schools, they're not leading schools. Yeah. Do you think that's really important to, to differentiate those two things, the, uh, the leaders of the managerial aspects of schools and also the leaders of curriculum and professional learning? Yeah, they're, they're indistinguishable because the management responsibilities of a leader won't go away. Mm. But one of the best leaders have done that I've worked with um, over, over quite a number of years is they find a way to prioritise mm. the leadership and prioritise the learning and the development of teachers. I mean, professional learning in particular is the biggest lever we've got when it comes to improving schools. Yes. So it's a matter of, you, can, you can't separate the two, but certainly the best, the best principles that I've worked with and so forth in a variety of projects um, find a way to prioritize. And they use the core business as the touchstone basically. And they ask the question, the same question you've asked, will this help me in what we're trying to achieve? Yeah. Uh, will it help me improve learning, improve teaching, or is it something else that we have to do? Now, if it's mandatory and we have to do it, we'll find a way to do it. But what I've also seen is that the best leaders find a way to turn that to their advantage. So, if, and I've done this myself because I'm not an ivory tower theorist. I've been a leader, you know, departments and programs and national president of this and state president of that and all that sort of thing. Um, so I've been a leader and I've used this knowledge myself if you have to do something, can you turn it to your advantage to support mm. your core business? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you can do that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think as well, like the the people that the principal the principals that I've had the privilege of working with that are doing this are those that are able to find space within yeah. the uh, uh, the mandatory structures, if you like, of schools. And and I have had the privilege of um, working with some really incredible uh, principals that have um, been incredibly aspirational. Um, mm. I think it's so important. I mean, speaking of principles, I mean, in your work, um, I'm the principal, principal learning action, influence and identity um, of which you wrote with a number of different colleagues. Um, I just wanted to ask, do you think the role of the principal uh, is changing or has changed? I know you, you talk about when you were at school, what a different context it is. Yeah. Now yeah, it seems to be, yeah, sorry. 
It's definitely changed. I mean, the 80s and 90s was a period when principals were told, your job is to manage. Yeah. And one of the things that has been a sort of an item of, of faith in, in some cases is give schools more autonomy or freedom and they'll be more innovative. Yeah. They'll be able to be more successful. Now, that has not held up in terms of what we know. Um, the problem with becoming more autonomous and independent and you know all those things is that often there's a whole lot of responsibilities that come with that yes that formally might have been done by the system so the whole issue of um autonomy there has has changed the role um, in government schools for example a lot more responsibility to do things that were formally done by a department and a lot of those things eat into what you'd like to do so the next big change is, is the whole instructional um, leadership movement where we've flipped from, I mean, I've been at conferences earlier on where principals were told your job is to manage, forget about learning and teaching. Now, of course, we're so concerned with things like our variation in NAPLAN results, the fact that in Australia, SES is twice the impact of learning on student learning that it is across the OECD. The, the great gaps between city and country, between low SES, high SES. I mean, the fact that our indigenous students are three years behind wow. in many cases. So now the pressure is really on school leaders to close those gaps, to lift that performance. Um, whereas before it might've been on the, more the managerial stuff. Mm. So leaders are, are getting, I think a very strong message, you're a leader of learning. Now there are other things that have changed, of course, too. I mean, society's changed too. And many of the um, issues that society faces, many of the problems that are experienced in society have been given to schools over the years. This has been going on for a long time. I've been writing about this for 30 years. Yeah. Every time a social problem arises, it's given to the schools. It's jammed into the curriculum somewhere. So you've got all these educations, you know, whether it's drug or bicycle or, I mean, one of my favorite ones I, I saw was bomb education. The idea that someone seriously said that because kids or people were downloading recipes for bombs from the internet, schools should be doing something about this. And so it goes. I mean, there's been some quite ridiculous things. So dealing with an overcrowded curriculum mm. has been one of them. Um, the whole issue of diversity has been a challenge because now we are really interested in catering for diversity and personalising learning, uh, whereas before it was very much, you know, full speed ahead and if you can't keep up, it's too bad. So... Uh, very much being able to make sure that every child experiences academic, personal, social yeah. success. That's been part of our national goals for schooling uh, for quite for 40 years or so now in Australia. So I think the role has changed there. It's changed in terms of um, dealing with the public and the 24-hour news cycle and social media. I mean, the issue of getting a, an email from a, a disgruntled parent or something at one o'clock in the morning is not unusual. Yeah. Um, it's not unusual for people to mobilise uh, against some aspect of what the school's trying to do. So it's, it's a much more intensive role than it was and it's a much more diverse role than it was. Yeah. And that's, that came out in that particular book you talked about yeah. where we interviewed 50 principals from across Australia in, in great depth about um, you know their development as a principal, what they do, what they see as the needs of the role. Um, one of the things that came through strongly in that book was the need for principals to support each other, to have support networks, to have critical friends, to have mentors, yeah. um, to have a, a supportive family background, all those sorts of things because of the pressures of the job. It's high pressure. Yeah, absolutely. And it does seem like a completely different set of skills when you go into a profession to teach and work with children and then all of a sudden you are um, in a position that requires extensive managerial and administration skills like it, it seems quite seems quite a stretch well it is it, it's there are it's a multifaceted role that's reflected in the standard for principals yes um, i mean one of the things that you do as you move up through a school system and, and beyond is you have to have a wider perspective you have mm. you have to help clarify the big picture for the people who work with you yeah. And, and you have to understand education policy and you have to understand national, international trends and, and all of those sorts of things. You have to keep up with the research. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be what I call the critical consumer of research because it's very easy to grab hold of things, spend money, time, effort to implement those 
Um, it's one of the reasons we've got Aero now, the Australian Education Research Organisation, which I very strongly support the notion of some sort of body that can act as a sort of a, a clearing house or some sort of quality control for education research. Because one of the things that the people our principals often tell me is, who, you know, how do I know who to believe? Mm. Yeah. yeah, and that's where AITS has also been very good too. There were some good guidelines there to understand educational research. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's a more complex role. It's a more demanding role. Uh, fewer people are applying for it yeah. than in the past. Um, and we're seeing people now being put into those roles at a, at a much earlier stage in some cases than they were before. But it's a matter of, you know, in some cases, I spoke, I've spoken to people from education systems who are jumping a generation to some degree. Mm. They're going for people like yourself, you know, younger people who have um, been engaged with the research and the work and everything else and are open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. So there's a bit of a, uh, a gap there to some degree between the very experienced people who've been in school for a long time, many of whom are great, yeah, but also many of whom are um, a bit possibly stale. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I obviously, sorry, it'd be remiss of me not to uh, to ask you about the current and, and ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of uh, interesting articles and pieces of research coming out um, on that in terms of schools. Um, I, what are some of these impacts that you uh, think the pandemic is having on schools? And do you think that uh, we are moving in the right direction in terms of being able to adapt and change? Yeah, look, I don't think this is the way of the future purely online learning, because schools have very important social functions, always yeah. have been. And um, where in America, for example, they've had online learning in some cases through uh, virtual charter schools for some times, their results have been appalling. Mm. Um, we need the social aspects of schooling. I think there's been some lessons which are positive. I mentioned the business of personalizing learning, but you have to do it because somebody's in a remote location. But um, the day-to-day, teacher-student relationship really suffers mm. for online learning conditions and it's put enormous pressure on parents and because in many cases parents are working from home and they're trying to you know supervise their their kids and help their kids i'm very much but, aware of that challenge yeah, it's it's not the way of the future by any means yes. um, there'll be some things that come out of it which are positive but again we've got a whole lot of people who are jumping on the bandwagon now offering all sorts of um, products mm. and services and so on supposedly to help you, you do these things more effectively. Yes. So I think there'll be some important lessons learned. Um, I think one of the important things that we're now realizing again is the notion of school-based curriculum development and teachers doing their own curriculum development um, is, a, is a waste in some cases. We need to actually share the best and brightest resources yes. and ideas and professional development is more important than it's ever been. Yes. Because the fact is, just like some kids have fared better than others when it comes to online learning, some teachers have fared better than others as well. And um, we need to be very careful that we don't widen gaps, not close them. And the kids who are most likely to miss out are the low SES kids. The kids, for example, whose parents don't have English as their first language, who maybe don't have broadband or the latest computer or whatever it happens to be, who can't provide those, that assistance to their children. So one of the, the dangers is we're going to exacerbate some of the gaps. Some of the extremely well-resourced schools can obviously do this a lot better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a really nice link to a, an article that you recently wrote called Students Are Not uh, Hardwired. Sorry, sorry, Students Are Not Learned to... Let me try that again. Well, students are not hardwired to learn in different ways. We need to stop using unproven and unharmful me uh, methods. And then I, I quote, it says, um, uh, yet with the best, uh, yet, I'm having trouble speaking today, yet with the best, uh, yet with the best in the world and without the knowledge and time to do so, decisions may be made to adapt new approaches that are not only ineffectual, but can actually do harm. Do you think it's really important to actually stop and think and choose what approaches we are learning. Yeah, are this is where the business of uh, being a critical consumer of research is important. And that's where uh, Aero and AITSL and other organizations are important too. Yes. Um, there are many people who want to sell us stuff. They want to sell us quick fix, easy solutions to learning. And um, the biggest publishers in the world are education publishers. Mm. So we need to be really careful because not only do some techniques not work and they waste time and money and so forth 
but in actual cases, they do harm. Um, the categorization that occurs with learning styles is one example. Mm. But I've seen schools spend thousands and thousands of dollars on stuff that I know done well, has no empirical base to it whatsoever. Uh, the business of categorizing students using learning styles I've mentioned, but I've seen one approach that's been used in schools and schools have paid thousands of dollars for this is multiple intelligences down one axis, learning styles across another, 30 something different styles of student that we have to now cater for. Complete rubbish. So you've, got, you've got two things there that are not meant to be used in schools and how Gardner has you know, no, no intention or in, initially to have um, multiple intelligences used in education. It was never meant for that. So we have to be really careful before we put the money down and, and we commit the time and effort uh, to these things. It's, it's the same thing when you buy a car or you buy a microwave or whatever it happens to be, you do your research. You know, you read the reviews, you talk to people who've had one before. You might even uh, try one out on a you know, test drive or whatever it happens to be yeah. before you put your money down. But often we're seduced by some of the fads and fashions. Yes. And we plonk the money down. And this notion of easy learning, um, you know, is, is sold in various ways. And the fact is that learning should be a challenge and it should build resilience and it should be rewarding when you achieve it. Um, so this idea that you can have this sort of magic formula that suddenly you know, teaches people whatever it is we want them to learn, you know, it's, it's very, very dubious. We have to be really careful. I've said elsewhere that I don't, know of any other profession more subject to fad fashion ideology and ideology is a big one in education mm. ideology uh political will and so forth as education yeah we're being pushed in all directions at all times we have too much change things get implemented before we have a time to evaluate them properly it's the way it is and people are impatient yeah. and every time there's a change of government at a state level for example we'll see substantial changes to education it happens that way all the time. So we really need a very measured, careful approach. Now, this is not to mean that we don't try new things because uh, the ESOP project I was involved with looking at successful schools in year seven to 10, um, they were risk takers, but they were informed risk takers. They weren't, they weren't satisfied to say, well, we've got it worked out. We know what we have to do, um, you know, just business as usual. They were continually asking questions, trying new things out and so forth. Um, so it's not a matter of staying still and not changing. It's a matter of doing it very selectively and carefully and strategically and taking teachers with us when we do mm -hmm. it yeah. and making sure that we've got the professional development we need to support it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, um, it's such an important thing. And I, it's kind of like anything that, is worthwhile takes time and also sustained change seems to be something which is very hard to do and very hard to measure and I think like it's also very easy to get these quick wins and things that feel like they're making uh, yeah. progress but yeah. it's quite often not the case. Um, just a curious um, Professor Zinnan, what currently has your attention and focus in terms of your research? I'm still very much interested in the notion of school improvement and change mm -hmm. and yeah. handling that in a way that is going to be productive and much of the work that I'm doing um, in the courses and, and the consultancy and so forth around the place is about assisting people with change and as you say not convincing them it's easy but convincing them it can be done yeah the average turnaround time for a school that's been you know, losing students and staff and reputation and resources and everything else I've found here and overseas is about six to seven years, which is depressing wow. on the one hand, but wow. on the other hand, it can be done. And there are many success stories, but you almost need a whole, if, whether it's primary or secondary school, you almost need a whole cohort of students to go through. And you need some change in the staff probably, because there'll be some people who resist it mm. before you get that real change. And then the, the big challenge then is sustainable change. Yeah. So that as a leader, when you leave, things keep moving. So, I mean, that's been the focus um, for nice. quite some time. The other one, I suppose, that um, we were very interested in was the issue of mindsets, uh, particularly about maths and science. I don't know whether you've seen the book that we did on the uh, REMSTEP project. 
reconceptualizing maths and science teaching programs. Yes. Um, but uh, that was very much about, because maths and science has been an ongoing problem in Australia, low levels of achievement in some cases, declining levels of achievement, uh, low levels of participation at the higher levels, teachers reporting, particularly in primary school, that uh, they don't feel as competent or confident about maths and science. And then in high school in Australia, we have the deplorable situation where substantial numbers of students are being taught by people who are trained in either maths or science, particularly in low ECS schools and remote schools. So that's been a, a real big area. And um, the REMSTEP project, there's a website for it as well as the book, involved yes. four universities, La Trobe, Monash, Deakin and Melbourne. And I led the project and it was about maths and science for the Commonwealth government. And that was about basically changing the mindsets of initially teachers and then students about maths and science, because very early on, people get the view that maths is boring and it's difficult and I can't do it. And similarly with science to some degree, um, we were trying to expose pre-service teachers and teachers to real maths and real science, which is not about using known theorems and you know yes. operations and so forth, but to expose people to real science, which is about and real math, which is about solving real world problems right mm -hmm. now, using mathematical and science, scientific knowledge. And that was very, very successful in terms of changing the mindsets of, of pre-service teachers yes. who previously had no interest whatsoever in geology or biology, or they lacked confidence in mathematics to the point that they could then go into schools with resources, strategies, and so on, and with the confidence yeah. to teach those subjects. So. Um, the issue of mindsets is extremely important. We know um, from the analysis of OECD data that the influence of student mindsets, plural, about their own abilities generally and their abilities in a particular subject outweighs the influence of SES. Yeah. And um, so the issue of declining general performance, uh, the issue of maths and science and, and the role that mindsets play, and then assisting schools in educational change, which is informed by research mm. and has lasting impact. That's it. Yeah. Pretty simple. And I think um, one of the, the takeaways they got, they got from your research with REMSTEP was um, just the importance of revitalizing the maths and uh, approaches to teaching maths and science. And it really yeah. made me think, um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Western Sydney and I had a, um, an incredible lecturer called uh, Dr. Catherine Attard, who uh, she transformed the way that I thought of not only maths, but I thought of myself as a um, uh, as a participant in mathematics. And I remember yeah. being in high school, and I'm pretty sure my maths teacher hated maths. And so yeah. for me, I went through high school with this mindset of I'm not good at this, and this is not for me. Um, but then sitting in Dr. Catherine Attard's lectures, it, it was a subject that really came alive. And um, it was so, so, so transformative for me and getting to, I uh, had the opportunity to talk to her about it on the podcast. And it was just fascinating to, like, I wish I had somebody like that teaching me in high school because it, I think it would have taken a different approach. Yeah, it, it was very regimented in the approach. I mean, the, the classic, you know, do exercises one to 20 and the answers are in the back, you know. And don't um, look. <laughs> and, and very early on, you know, kids get a, a message it's not for them. And it really has a, a knock-on effect all the way through high school. Yeah. Um, once you get through primary, that they're no good at it and um, and not interested in it. It's the other part of it too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I'm, I'm the, the proud dad of two very young girls at a 20-month um, a and a, almost a, an almost four-year-old. And right. for me, I'm in... Um, I'm incredibly passionate about, especially a, a girl's uh, education in terms of STEM subjects and, and yeah. mathematics and science. And um, it's something, and, and thank you so much for your, for your the REMSTEP uh, research, because I was reading it not only through the lens of a teacher, but also through the lens of a, of a father trying to make sure that, that um, my children love the subjects as much as I have come to. So um, thank you. Thank you for the research on that. Yeah, it was a great team we had working on that. Uh, maths experts, science experts, but we also had people from maths and science faculties as yeah. well, and people from research centres. So it was a yeah, really very rich group of people there. We had, in some cases, some of our candidates were sitting in the lab of a Nobel Prize winner. Wow. Yeah, you know, and in other cases, uh, people heading off to the Melbourne Museum. Uh, to the geology section, which would sound pretty dry and, and coming away enthused 
because the other part of it too was that the people who were working with our candidates um, found it wonderful to be able to share their knowledge and passion. Yeah, yeah. So, so frequently we don't use what's on our doorstep too. Um, yeah, yeah, it's so important. Um, Professor Denham, just a couple uh, more questions. I, I do want to be respectful um, of your time, but um, mm. I'm just interested um, if you could get a message out to uh, educators, both people that are in the profession and people that are thinking about embarking on the profession, what would that message be? I would say, and in fact, I had this conversation with someone a couple of days ago. It's probably never been more challenging, but it's also potentially never been more rewarding than it is at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, because of the changes that are occurring and um, you know, a whole range of things that are happening worldwide. So I, I think it's an extremely rewarding occupation. It's certainly worth doing. Uh, you've got to be committed to it, though. You've got to be committed to um, the notion that you are going to be a lifelong learner with this. Yeah. Uh, you've got to also be prepared to work with other people and uh, work collaboratively which can be very, very satisfying. If you think it's a job, you're going to find it a very difficult job. If you treat it as a profession, uh, you're gonna find it very rewarding. But there's no doubt that um, the challenges are real and they continue to evolve. Um, but you know, we need good teachers more than ever. People often look at the internet and say, well, you know, we just need guides by the side or facilitators. We need good teachers more than ever to help kids negotiate all of that. Mm -hmm. It was all much easier when, you know, all the knowledge that we had was sitting in books on the shelf. That's not the case. And part of that business with the internet, and this is where teachers and students need to work together, is to try and work out what's got credibility and what hasn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think now more than ever, there is a need for um, uh, passionate and extremely competent mm. individuals to uh, to embark on the profession. And um, uh, Professor Zinnam, I just wanted to personally thank you for all of the the decades and decades of work that you have done and the research investing uh, into our profession and, and sitting in the Masters in Instructional Leadership course with you a, a number of years ago was mm. uh, truly transformational. So thank you for that. And um, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time. I get great pleasure from working with yeah. committed educators like yourself. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to uh, continuing to learn more about your research and uh, reading your articles. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Matthew. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.